Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Jessica, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Tara. It's so good to talk. I, um, um, you know, you run a business that um, that is a hard business that everybody thinks we need more of around the country. I think so. Um, uh, yeah, and you're you've you're a great example of an entrepreneur who's actually done the hard work of starting a meat processing business. So I am super excited to have you on the show. It is hard work and it's obviously a passion. I'll try not to get too overly excited so that uh, we don't have <laughs> volume issues and such. Uh, uh, but I appreciate the opportunity to talk about what's been a long 11 year run of, uh, of trial and hurdle and um, challenge and some successes along the way. That's awesome. Awesome. All right. So, why don't we start by just having you introduce yourself and your business? Okay. Well, my name is Jessica Rusa, and my uh, business is this old farm. Um, began as a meat as a, a as a farm. So this old farm began as a farm. Um, believe it or not, we now operate this old farm meats and processing, which is the processing division of our uh, company. Uh, I continue to farm, though not nearly as much as I used to um, pre pre-processing business, um, raise sheep, katahdins, and they do come through the processing facility. But the majority of the work that we do at our processing facility is service processing, um, co-packing, custom processing, has so many different names to it. Um, but our primary customer is a farmer who has an end market and wants their product to be processed um, to meet the specifications that they've determined. That's about 75% of our business. The other 25% of our business is processing from farmers that we've worked with um, to produce a branded product that we're going to market either through a wholesale chain or retail chain. Yeah, so in the world of processing, there's um, this uh, regulatory distinction, right? Between somebody who is just doing custom processing and somebody does more than that. So. Um, so you're doing more than that. We are doing more than that. So we are a small USDA inspected facility. We've graduated from their classification that was very small. Uh huh. So uh, we can ship across the United States, have inspection staff here uh, full time every day of the week um, for a first shift where we slaughter and then a second shift where we process, we have a secondary inspection staff come in uh, sometime during the evening. Wow, two people, two different people two every different, day. Well, yeah, two different people every day. And, and then they are supervisors here about half of the time. Huh. He's a veterinarian that manages several different facilities. Huh, interesting. So much oversight, right? Did um, When you started, did you... Um, did you, were you USDA certified right away or has this been a gradual process for you? This has been a, a process. So going back in time when I was 32 years, 33 years old, getting ready to start this company, um, as far as the processing division, at that point in time, I purchased an existing 1978 facility uh, that was under custom it was running custom exempt um, mm -hmm. so no no oversight other than state inspection uh, mm -hmm. I think on a custom exempt facility the state comes in once every six months or so and reviews records um, I took that facility under state inspection that first year so that I could sell throughout the state of Indiana and uh, that facility was aged. It would not have met the guidelines required for uh, federal inspection or USDA inspection. So um, I did have a fire a year after I purchased the facility. It burned down. A lot of the old facilities in the United States have the same fate happen. Um, eventually wow. So the facility burnt, burnt down in 2010, December 27th. I rebuilt it. 
And then once it was rebuilt, I went ahead and took it under federal inspection at that point in time. Wow. So, so is this actually a common thing that happens in meat processing that they, there's fires? Uh, fire is, uh, is a common um, huh. uh, fate for facilities operating from that, that era, um, mm. especially if they have not been updated. So they have not been updated to modernize the smokehouses. Oh, so, yeah. And so those old, uh, old time smokehouses and, of course, a lot of electrical needs. We have a lot of electricity and water in the same space. Mm-hmm. And that's never a friendly combination. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for a variety of different reasons, fire seems to be fairly prevalent in the, the older facilities. Interesting. So so no wonder there's the, all this regulatory oversight, right, in part because of this as well as food safety. But anyway, that had to have been traumatic to have a fire in your second year of business. It was certainly, certainly was. And okay. had I had I known really what I was getting into, I, I could have I could have seen that as an out. Um, but I was only a year in and I was still gung ho. And I was thinking, oh, I've got to get this done. And I know how to, you know, I know I thought I knew um, how to traverse forward and, and was still full of energy at that point in time. Um, oh boy. It was a learning curve all the way through. And I look back and I, I truly cannot tell you why it worked for me to get back into business. I cannot give you the numbers that prove that it should have worked right. um, to, to get back into business, but I did. Yeah. So did you get, I'm assuming you had insurance, right? So you had an ins- made an insurance claim. I had, I had an insurance claim that was based on the previous owner's um, assets in a business that he was trying to get out of. Uh-huh. Uh, I had asked for a review of that policy on November 13th. And uh, knowing knowing that we were underinsured, unfortunately uh-huh. the holidays hit um, and the fire was December 27th. So oh my God. Never, never happened. Um, it is something that I highly recommend for new business owners to, to certainly look at those policies and really think hard um, and ask the tough questions that you may be overwhelmed. You may be overwhelmed at the moment uh, in all that needs to be done. But if you're putting all that work into it and you aren't properly covered, it certainly is a painful result. Oh, boy. So, all right. But you um, you had insurance, even though you were underinsured. And then did you rebuild just with the with an eye toward being federally inspected? That that was the idea. When I got into this business, I got into this business thinking that I was getting into a wholesale um, meat business. Uh-huh. Uh, primarily, in my mind, was going to help solve the challenges of my own farm operation, getting a product to market, um, as well as other farmers that needed to get a, a product to market. But I thought that I would be taking possession of the majority of product and then selling it. Right. Um, and and so to. To make that happen, uh, I did strive to go across state lines and therefore federal inspection was um, was needed. I was still very green and understanding just what that oversight really looked like, um, what those requirements really were. Uh, at that point in time in my life, I was very much anything is possible. Let's do it. Right. And, and so, you know, the do it meant going under federal inspection. Right. Right. So when you rebuilt, did you build, did you rebuild at the same scale or is, are you, did you rebuild bigger? Because of the timeline I needed to have, have um, the building done. Uh, and that's why I look back and I, I don't actually know how you did it. We, we put this building back up in seven months from the fire. So we reopened Holy in July of 2011. Um, and because we, in order to do that, we basically took the old design and, and made very few changes and, re, and put it back up in a similar fashion using the existing foundation, existing concrete that was there, existing wastewater that was mm-hmm. in place. Uh, and so there were, there were a few changes made, but not, uh, not a whole lot of changes made at that point in time. And since that point in time, we've, we've added on several different small areas are working to add on a larger larger capacity currently mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you had changed all that, then seven months would have taken longer, I suspect. So, yeah, that's that's right. And the business the business plan was defunct if I could not um, capture some of the business that would come in during the July, August, September, the high the high volume right uh, time of year. And so I pushed hard to get that done. Yeah. Amazing. So you rebuilt and you um, rebuilt in a way that you could be federally inspected. And then did you start federal inspection right away then? No, the state was here um, when we when we reopened. Um, I enjoyed working with the state of Indiana. And um, it was it's a it was a low lower stress, um, easier uh, to navigate the the state system that was really there to promote commerce in Indiana, and so they were here to uh, I don't want to say assist, but there was more assistance mm-hmm. um, through the state program. So we we did go under that state program to begin with, um, and then started having that conversation uh, with the USDA. And in order to get your grant of inspection for the USDA, you have to relinquish other inspections. So I remember there being this kind of heart-wrenching period of time where you have to relinquish your other inspection and hope that the USDA takes on uh, at that point. Oh my. And it did, it did happen. Uh, And, and uh, uh, looking back, you know, I I could, could probably talk for a whole hour on deciding what type of inspection to go under if you're Mm -hmm. looking at a, a meat business. But but in a in a you know hundred thousand foot view, um, you need the federal inspection in most cases to ship over state lines. So you know if that's your goal, you have no choice about that, right? And and I guess the other big thing is that um, in order to be federally inspected, you need to have inspectors on site. Correct. Now, there is an interstate shipment program that is working. I think there's 27 states in the the U.S. that have a state inspection program. So not all states have a state inspection program. Mm. And amongst those 27 that do, I I believe there's a half a dozen or so that have a kind of a, a, a combination program, an interstate shipment program that is mo- monitored and managed by the state, but meets the guidelines of, of the federal. Hmm. Um, and that was not an option when I, when I was, it was a discussion, but not an option when uh, I went under inspection. And at this point in time to go back to that program, I would have to again, relinquish inspection and, yeah. and just don't don't see that as a, as a good viable option at this point in time um, but is if I was advising a new plant owner that's something I would advise them to look into yeah you know we I we, Wisconsin was a state that was working on that and I'm not sure what the status of it is I know a couple of meat plants who were kind of the bleeding edge in the beginning and it and it didn't work really well and they ended up having to go under federal certification anyway so yeah yeah it's kind of it's been a messy messy environment but um and you're in indiana what part of indiana are you are you in central indiana okay uh, so kind of in between uh, purdue country purdue university country uh-huh. and indianapolis our state capital okay so pretty rural. Definitely a, a rural business. Uh, mm-hmm. We do have good inter, uh, interstate access, which is important. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, definitely 30 minutes from most things. And uh, our customer base comes from all surrounding states, you know, three to four hours out. Mm-hmm. Um is probably a good average. Uh, so we do have some customers that are closer by and they, they tend not to understand what how good they have it to right. have access to processing close by. Right, right. So so that's kind of your trade area, um, is you would say is like three to four hours farmers are driving to you to get um, processing. Yes, in Indiana, in the Midwest, we have good options. Um, for processing, we have a pretty strong infrastructure built that's that uh, has not totally depleted itself or, or uh, shut down. Um, I think you know across the United States that message uh, gets a little broader. So I think yeah. 400 miles is the average distance to processing currently. 
for uh-huh. a farmer and a lot of that is because of the great distance out west mm. that some folks are are traveling to processing indiana still has a good number of options what i know from farmers is that they and, and me myself as that producer as that farmer beginning farmer um while i had options i didn't have options that i liked and mm-hmm. so because the processor wouldn't do everything that was in my mind in my dreams, uh, then that it made me frustrated and made me want to see new new options come aboard. Come, come aboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back, I wish that I had taken more time to develop relationships with the existing processors prior to mm-hmm. jumping into the mindset of we need to build new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, right? That um, that everybody says they need it, and then, yeah, and then COVID hit, right? And then we really, I think people started experiencing empty shelves in the grocery store, and then like, whoa, we really do need more processing. If just if nothing else, just to have options. We we need a certain scale, and it's an interesting chicken or egg scenario yeah. because we certainly had that whole year that we felt we were um, under, uh, you know, we didn't that we didn't have enough capacity within the processing world. But we we now you know one year later, so that was yeah. March of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, one year later, March of 2021, we have scaled. We do have a second shift. We are working on building. Um, additional capacity on, but we also struggle with filling spots that we have. Mm-hmm. I have two salespeople that are on the phone a whole lot trying to make sure that those spots are filled as of May of 2021. Now, when we get to July, August, September, October, November, yes, capacity is going to then be another challenge because those are high, high need times. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's there's still a seasonality that's uh, that yeah. presents a challenge. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that. I think I I suspect people don't you know you don't think about how much seasonality there would be in your business, but um, you know, kind of left to your left to their own devices. Like, um, how much would your sales go down? I don't know. What is it? Spring would be the worst time, or actually, probably mm-hmm. the dead of winter, right? Oh, February, I say February through June. Uh-huh. Um, those four months are, are historically what we've seen as the slowest months. Uh-huh. And we're talking about a 60 to 70% decrease. Wow. So anytime you run any kind of processing business, it's a nightmare when you have heavy seasonality, right? Because how do you keep employees and everything? Yes. So that's got to be rough for you. It is. It's been. Uh, it's been challenging in the in the past, and it certainly you know creates that kind of pit in the stomach thought when you're trying to grow capacity, because right. you then have more people that are counting on on keeping you know keeping steady employment. Um, so it's just a consideration to to put out there. I uh, I haven't had a layoff. Um, I've never had a time where I couldn't use staff somewhere, but I farm. And so I take those staff members at that time mm. of year and, and they oftentimes are building fat fence, mm-hmm. putting up a new barn, doing a, a project right. um, at that, at that time. So if I didn't have that, uh, you know, that combination there, there would be some, some strain, at least for me as a business owner who wants to make sure that people stay. And it's such a high skilled trade job that you let people uh, not do their daily activities for, you know, even, even a couple months, even a week, and they forget what they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so keeping that trained labor force is certainly a challenge. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So we used to, you know, there used to be like meat cutting programs at, at tech schools. And um, I think a lot of them have been, uh, we've gotten rid of them, right? It's like it, it almost disappeared as a trade, right? Or as an idea that it's actually a trade. 
Yes, uh, I, I promote it on a regular basis um, mm-hmm. because it's it's almost a lost art or a lost or been forgotten. Yeah. Um, the uh, and I have some retail staff members now that have come out of the retail industry as the retail industry, like your large grocery stores, shut down their cutting departments. Um, there, I, I only foresee that is going to exemplify or get get. Uh, turn into a larger problem as they start to only take in packaged meat because that packaged right. meat's coming from the large industry and the large industry employees may know how to make a single cut mm-hmm. on, an, on an animal or a single cut on a ham, so to speak, but they don't know how to break that entire animal down. And right. so our industry that's doing whole animal butchery, we need, we need skilled trained staff that can do the entire process, which takes time. And there really is very few options out there. Like you said, there are some that are creeping back up. This is a COVID good example. This is a good use of resources. I'm very happy. I had a guy, a couple guys out last week at Ohio State University doing mm-hmm. a meat cutting training program. I know I've seen um, Purdue. I've seen a master butchery uh, and a short course through Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's some options out there, um, but certainly not like the rest of manufacturing has access to. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you actually need skilled workforce and you need how many for your plant? So let's get like an idea of scale for people. So I, maybe beef equivalents, you know, like how many, how many animals a week are you doing and how many staff do you need? So we're currently running 36 full-time staff or four part-time staff. Um, where we are right now, we're currently um, doing 60 to 70 head of beef a week and 50 hogs. Um, so beef, equi- beef equivalent. Um, some of those beef are not being broken down um, all the way. I'd say I usually say one processing beef equivalent, one one beef mm-hmm. to one man. Yeah. Um, uh, is is the number I use on the processing side that doesn't take into account the the slaughter side or the um, value added side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What kind of value added do you do? We uh, we run um, several different ready to eat products, including summer sausages and bolognese and um, jerkies, uh, snack sticks just a great variety of things there that are requested and required. We have tried to be that processor that I, uh, that I dreamed of having to begin with. So (laughs) we serve serve a a niche market of farmers that are looking to direct market their product and want a very broad base of products. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the sausage side, on, on just even a fresh sausage side, we have about 12 different uh, options to choose from. And we have all the smoked sausages, base sausages, hams, bacons, um, different varieties of hams and bacons. Um, so it, that that product, um, a, a lot of the farmer disconnect with processors comes through desire to have so many different product options, not understanding the batch sizes needed to make that work and Mm. the complexity of all of the different choices that would be there um, had. So just putting together the sausage options and keeping things 100% traceable, which is our customer demand. Now, very few facilities out there are 100% traceable. They may th- they may make their customer base think that they are, but they're usually pooling their grind together for good known reasons. Uh, to be able to offer options, they pool their grind together, and then um, and then a farmer could get the options back, but they may not be getting the options back from their own individual hogs or, or beef, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, because it was the, the breadth of product, like I said, just creates more complexity, more uh, training needs, um, and and more management needs. Right, right. So when you say pooling grind, what do you what is for for people who don't work at a meat plant? What do you mean by that? So the majority of our cost in our facility is based on traceability. So a large facility becomes much more efficient because they're really not tracing down to the individual animal. But when we're doing service processing 
for a, a producer that wants their product back, we're tracing that down to the individual animal in many cases. And um, that is one thing for steaks and chops and middle meats um, to send back. But a, a next step is all the grind. So all the trim that comes off of an animal, the majority of your product is not in steaks. So we wish we all had a beef that was all steaks or a hog that was all pork chops and bacon. Um, but that's just not how it is. So we have all of this ground beef, um, what you might be uh, referred to as hamburger, that's made from all of the trim that comes off the chucks and the rounds and just, uh, you know, the odd pieces. And that is oftentimes pooled together for a lot's day of production. So, okay, I processed 20 beef today and all of the grind went into vats and then went into the um, it, to the grinding system. And then this farmer got back 80 pounds of that. This farmer got back 200 pounds of that, uh, so on and so forth. But it wasn't traced back to the individual animal. Mm -hmm. That would be a much more efficient way of doing it and is the way that majority of facilities would do it. Mm -hmm. we, we stand behind 100% traceability down to the grind and even the, the offal, the heart, liver, tongue, kidney, everything that comes off that animal. Okay, so you're you're keeping it um, traceable all the way. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Do you do grass fed versus in organic or anything like that too? Well, and you're hitting on the reason. One of the reasons why, uh, other than that, I farmed and I wanted to know that what I got back was was my own. Right. Um, because of whatever label claim, uh, I as a high. Um, niche uh, producer, high-end, what I would have termed myself, high-end, health-minded um, niche producer that was doing it this certain way and whatever that way be, those label claims, mm -hmm. your grass-fed, your organic, I wanted to make sure that those label claims could exist. So we are a certified organic facility. Okay. And it does require traceability, at least for that certified organic product, of course. Yeah. Um, and in order to use those other label claims, uh, we would we do need to be able to trace so that we can use those label claims. There's a lot of wishy-washiness in the industry re regarding that scenario. Um, and, you know, I don't get into what others, others do and, and concentrate on what I do. But as a producer, I would certainly be asking lots of questions after being on the inside of a, of a processing facility. Yeah, in that's a positive manner, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. When I, one period of my career, I ran a cheese company and we took our way and we made animal feed out of it. And we would do, we were doing feed trials and it was really hard to find a processor who could guarantee. So we'd send, you know, six animals that had six different feeding regimes. We'd need them to be, everything to be traced, right? Because it's an R&D project. It was really hard to find somebody who could do that. Yes, for, and for good, for good reason. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people don't really understand that the, the, the cost difference for a lot of our label claims indeed comes from that traceability. Yeah. Needed in this, the efficiency challenge with, with making sure that we can trace and the higher end staff that you need to be able to trace products through because we're not just asking them to take the meat off of that ham we're asking them to take the meat off of that ham and keep track of it and make sure it has a label at all times yeah, you know so on and so forth yeah 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 it's interesting right so so you're um if you think about how much how much extra work there is for that plus you're doing things manually plus you know there's a there's a lot more labor costs associated with the way you do your work right yes for mm -hmm. sure and, and you know I, I take pride in that skilled uh, skilled trade the butcher trade yeah. uh, and ensure that we are continuing to train that trade mm -hmm. um through uh it, it's hard it's hard physical work for them on a, on a daily basis for sure yeah yeah so what parts of your business are you expanding well, we have been working on refrigeration. Uh -huh. um, so we, we, we have three different building projects going on at one time. So that might be the definition of insanity. Uh -huh. uh, we, we are um, completing a urban butcher shop. 
um, set to open in the summer of 2021. Um, we are uh, midway through uh, a refrigerated warehouse space on our property where our existing processing facilities are. Um, and in that building, if given the opportunity to finish it all the way out, we'll also have processing capacities uh, built into it. Um, I have not gotten enough uh, letters of intent to justify it as of yet, still working mm -hmm. on that. So the shell is up and we're putting in the refrigerated uh, warehouse space um, to solve some of our challenges in our existing facilities. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also have a barn that uh, I, brought, I had another fire last year and uh, oh, no. a barn burned down on, on my own personal farm. And so that uh, barn is, is rebuilt, but still being finished. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's a lot of construction all at once. <laughs> yeah. Too much. So a couple of things about this. So um, letters of intent. So talk, talk, let's talk about those. You, you, is that expressions of interest from farmers to send you animals? Yes. So I, I, uh, I, another word could be needs assessment. So for every, for every one person that says we need to have a, you know, a processor, you ask them to put down their needs, you know, what, uh -huh. how many animals are you going to bring to that processor? And the people that really are outspoken about needing processors oftentimes have five head. You know, yeah. they, they have very small um, mm -hmm. operations. And I'm not laughing about that because I started that, that way. I, you know, I told, told you that I raised 300 head of sheep right now. And I started with three ewes and a ram. Oh, so there you go. You've got to start. So, and we have to encourage, um, encourage farmers to expand um, from there. But they tend to be the most outspoken group about needing a new processor are the ones that are just getting started. And therefore, they aren't very adept at business practices and really putting down, you know, okay, this is really what I need each yeah. year. And what, how's that affect our supply chain throughout? So mm -hmm. um, back in the beginning of, of this COVID um, upswing, uh, which I'm very thankful for, there's so many businesses that are struggling so hard. And, and our problem was that we had too much business. Mm -hmm. There's another way to go out of business, right? Um, but uh, when I looked at that, I said, before we we invest $2 million into uh, a new new expanded facility uh, at the very base, you know, 2 million or up. Um, let's, let's see what that really, that real need is. So created a needs assessment, um, have a couple salespeople go start tracking what their farmers uh, needs were now and what they anticipated them being as they grew, what were their, their desires for growth in other words. Yeah. And uh, I, I have hoped to see a picture that said, oh, yes, this is definitely makes sense to, to build. And I have a few solid conversations that are in the works that may justify fi finishing that out. But they certainly not letters of commitment yet. Mm -hmm. And so I, I uh, after after 11 years, got enough sense to stall huh. until those letters of commitment are firmed up. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, right? It's sort of like I tell people when they're selling food, it's like that too. You know, you have to you ask people conceptually, would you want to buy this product? If most people will say yes, you know, in theory, but they haven't tasted it. They don't know what the price is, right? And then things get different after that. Yeah, yeah. So how much did you invest when you bought the old meat plant? So, so the original meat facility that I purchased that I was nervous about purchasing that uh -huh. was a scary investment was 150000 Oh, yeah. Isn't that crazy? And then did you have to put money in right away, even before the fire? Before the fire, probably invested about $100,000 uh -huh. um, uh, prior to having the fire just to get it manageable and, and running. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but still, still such a uh, far different story. Now I had done a, a decent feasibility study uh -huh. prior to purchase of that facility. Uh -huh. And that feasibility study was looking at 
building on farm. Um, so my farm sits about seven miles away from mm. the existing facility that I run. So my original vision was to build on farm and take care of uh, poultry and hogs, not beef because of the size um, and the cost of, uh, of construction due to the size. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my original vision. Uh, the feasibility study proved that it was not a good idea at that time. Ah, interesting. 11 years ago. Um, and so I, I went to go look for different options and came upon a facility that was close enough and an owner that was um, dying to get out, had been trying to get out for a number of years, was not for sale. Mm-hmm. But upon having a conversation, um, he had been looking for an option to, to get out of the business. Interesting. Yeah. So you talked to him and you figured out how to do this and then you put some more money into it. Um, so that was probably like 250 to get in, right? Because it, it was an existing facility. And then you had the fire and you had to put more money in, right? Then I had to put more money in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, still a naive young business owner that thinks all things are possible and can't understand why the bank is asking me so many questions. (laughs) Can't understand, you know, don't you know all things work? I mean, that was my opinion at this time in my life. I just, you know, I hadn't had a whole lot of things that hadn't worked yet. Um, And and so I was, you know, looking at it through my lens and, and the, you know, the bank came back years later and said, yes, we, we were very hesitant to even <laughs> 300,000. That's all I was asking for. Uh-huh. We were very hesitant to even loan you 300,000. Now, 10 years later, 11 years later, I have good loanability. I've shown that I can make it make it work right um, but uh it just depends on where your lens is at that moment totally in time. yeah well and you know three hundred thousand ten years later is probably a bigger number than that too right like things haven't gotten cheaper but um yeah i think that's part of getting the people's heads around just how much money it takes to start these businesses too well, yes. And that's, again, something that I think the base number when I was looking at building on farm was, you know, a million plus at that time, just and no beef. Yeah. I, I feel like wow. The majority of our business is beef. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. This, this year we did get out of poultry um, and I don't know that we're going to get back in. That was mm-hmm. what the basis of the business was because I was a pastured poultry producer. Oh. I just couldn't deem it as as feasible. So, you know, 11 years in, I can give you a long list of the things that did not work. You know, I've, I've learned this failure thing, not that my business has failed, but that lots of things tried within the business did not work. Right. Um, and that, uh, that poultry is, is one of them that uh, was just too difficult to, to pull through when the beef business was available. It was right. a choice that had to be uh, had to be made, but the, you know, back to the the economics. Yeah, a million dollars was what I was looking at for a build from a ground up building eleven years ago. Um, you know, that same uh, that same building today, I'm sure, would be at least one point eight, and we haven't gotten to beef yet. Yeah. Um, and so, to be able to put beef into that equation, you know, we're at that two and a half three million dollar yeah spot. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's for, that's for, what did you say you do a week, uh, the number of head a week? Yes, and that's Beef just equivalent. Our small facility. We're, we're currently doing 70 head of 70 beef. head a week. A week. We're at, you know, we're, we don't, we're busting at the seams. We don't have the refrigeration capacity to add, add more until we get this refrigerated warehouse space Mm-hmm. Done. We're still going to be challenged with hanging um, hanging rail space yeah. at our existing uh, facility there, and we're trying to our, our uh, growth um, strategy right now is ninety beef, and we'd mm-hmm. like to finish that other building out that I mentioned uh, yeah. to do hogs only. If we finish that other building out to do hogs only, we'd like to finish it to do 150 a day of hogs only. And then we'd be at 120 beef a week mm-hmm. of, uh, in the in the existing facility. Yeah. Again, I, ha- I haven't found that right partner to make that 150 head uh, a day hog facility 
pencil work. out. That's just mm-hmm. it's kind of what I call the no man's zone. There's very mm-hmm. few facilities operating where we are now in the state of Indiana. Um, recent um, recent survey done through COVID funding, trying to access COVID fi- funding. So it was not a, a detailed s- survey by any means. It was not a study. But when I reviewed the uh, records sent in by a variety of different facilities. I was proud that in 11 years, we were showing to be the second largest of those that responded huh. in the state. Yeah, Everybody else is generational. Right. You know, they've been there for generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and there's obviously advantages when you're running something at a third generation standpoint than a first generation um, mm-hmm. standpoint. But even the other story I take from that is there's this gap between where we are now at the scale we are now and then the large, what we might say, industrial system, sure. commodity system. And, and there's nobody really operating in that scale. And I haven't figured out the, the whys. You know, maybe mm-hmm. Tara, you can tell me the, the whys there as to why we don't have plants operating in there. I have one example that I lean on um, in Minnesota. Hmm. Um, and, and they have a big customer that, that uh, helped fund them. Um, and, and I think that's what it takes is those letters of a commitment, that big customer. So I have about three of those that I'm talking to right now to see if we can get to that that stage of business because it increases efficiencies and therefore throughput and um, training ability. There's all kinds of good things that come with a little bit of volume. Yeah. Um, And then there's the headache that comes with it on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, part of it is what's happened. It's kind of mirroring what happened with agriculture, right? That if you look at the data, the egg in the middle, it is suffers the most right now, right? like really small who could direct market to consumer though they did well and they certainly did really well during COVID and then the big industrial people. And then they're just, you know, those folks in the middle too big Mm -hmm. to be all direct. And yeah, that's the hard part. It's just interesting that it follows all the way through from the farm through the, you know, the same issues happening at the processor level. Yes, we're more alike than than farmers oftentimes want to, yeah, want to yeah. know. We should be the best best of partners, um, but sometimes the frustration level is is great there. And you know, I do this 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 thought process uh, or processing this thought that it, I, I lean on the fact that, or at least what I think is the fact that we should be investing in existing facilities to help them scale. Yeah. Um, because the cost of construction is therefore lower because they have a base mm-hmm. foundation and the yeah. upstart upfront cost um, is is lower. Um, mm-hmm. But but the other side of me wonders, and I, I can't pencil it out um, on on how the small boutique processors make it. I haven't been able to. And when I'm talking about small, I know a lot of facilities in Indiana are still operating at five beef a day maybe and they may they may kill once or twice a week um not every day but once or twice a week they may kill mm-hmm. and they may kill 10 and then they process those out throughout the week mm-hmm. i i haven't been able to pencil that mm-hmm. business model out successfully um but i know with existing infrastructure maybe generational inf- infrastructure yeah. in place there's a lot of those running still yeah, no, and they're, you know, they they haven't bought new equipment in forever, and um, it's a family business, and yeah, it's an interesting time, too, because I think, at least in a place like Wisconsin, a lot of those businesses are, you know, as you said, multi-generational, and it's not obvious that the new generation wants to take it over, so we're, we may be about to lose even more capacity than we thought, right, in the small scale side of things that that is that is true for sure right in in indiana which is where where i have my my stories from is you know i think we lost three facilities right before covid right um and they were just you know they just didn't have that next that that passed down plan figured out yeah um, so they closed and nobody and nobody wanted to do it yeah 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see with COVID how that might change whether people want to stay in or not. But you still have to have a plan, right? And with USDA certification in particular, inspection in particular, like you, there's some investment that's required to, to get the plant up, right? Yes. I, mean, I think that investment is, is there uh, just because of the nature of the business, but inspection does not make it any easier. For example, when I was talking about bringing this new building under inspection, uh, mm-hmm. so I already have a grant of inspection. I already know how to run a USDA facility. I'm doing it. Right. And when talking to them about building, you know, building and bringing on this new plant of inspection, you know, the the lead in my district. Uh, said, well, Jessica, this time I want you to pick the best engineer in the country that knows how to build USDA facilities and then build it better than what they told you to do. Oh, no. I'm like, well, what kind of of metric is that then? Uh (laughs) What kind of standard is that um, to have to try to measure up to? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... uh um, you, you're opening an urban butcher shop. Where's that going to be? That is going to be in Lafayette, Indiana. So that's uh, where Purdue University is. Uh-huh. So this is kind of a twin city scenario. Yeah. Uh, uh, chose chose a, a location with uh, good good demographics that can support um, support the upscale or upside. Uh, you know the the niche mm-hmm. needs. And I'm uh, excited about that. That's kind of home for me. So it's a kind of a returning to home after this great country lifestyle that I've, I've had. And I uh, look at having a positive, um, happy customer base. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the retail customer loves to be able to access good meat. Yeah. Uh, the, the farmer is oftentimes experiencing something challenging when they enter our doors. Mm-hmm. And so they're not always mm-hmm. the most co- positive customer base, but uh, the retail uh, customer base is, is that positivity. And so we're hopeful that this helps um, generate some income um, that's mm-hmm. much needed in, in sales outlets for some of our producers. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll help your supply and farmers too. So um, uh, do you have a store in your, where your um, processing facility is? We do. Uh, a couple of years ago, we expanded the storefront uh, I think that was 2017 when we expanded the storefront. I, I really did that, though, in a measure to uh, to take care of a distribution challenge that I had and that I didn't have enough space to move pallets through and such. And so I needed mm. to build on in the front of the building. And at, at which time um, I might as well add on the, the storefront. Um, I only mention that because the storefront alone did not pencil itself out. It was, it was an aid to getting the rest of the distribution um, taken care of. Glad I haven't. Um, We are 30 miles from anything or 20 miles from anything, I should say. So it's not a huge uh, money by any, by any means, but it certainly makes us all happy to come to work and have, uh, and have an ability to sell sell some of our products Mm -hmm. out of, um, we try to meet fresh meat counter in there and we could not make that work. Uh-huh. Um, I've, I've seen some of these work in other places. Again, those generational businesses that sometimes are uh, far removed from, from populous areas, but we, we're talking there that grandma always got her meats there. And so, yeah. mom, you know, the, the mom always did. And so I'm still doing so too. And over time that builds this, this following and, and we just haven't found that yet at 11 years. Yeah. 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 Yeah, in in rural places, you have to be there two generations to be local, right? So. Yes, yes, very much true. Yeah, yeah, no. So, so you decided this was even before COVID that you you wanted to have a retail location that was somewhere where people were. Um, and and so, when is that supposed to open? That is supposed to open summer of 2021. I'd really, we were, we were shooting for the week before July 4th. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, uh, I have not put that away. It would be a soft opening because I am not positive that we'll make that. Um, mm-hmm. All supplies are hard to come by right now. Um, right. Contractors are, are booked, uh, booked out. Um, 
all three of my building projects have had challenges with and delays due to supply issues. Yeah. 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 So did you, when you first capitalized, did you, cause you were, you're a farmer. Did you um, get like value added producer grants or something to help you get started with this? That, um, that was how I got into business uh-huh. uh, without, without the grant funding. I could not have penciled it out. Yeah. Uh, we were funded by a value added producer grant. Um, when we first started our feasibility work, that's what funded that feasibility project to decide whether to build on farm or purchase something is what we came, came through at the end of that feasibility study. Mm-hmm. Um, then second round of fun- funding um, helped cover um, salaries to at least give me, me a living through the building phase and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and the small business innovation research grant was another one that uh, really helped get me started. Um, I'm very thankful for that one. So what did you use the SBIR for? Because I usually I think of that as more, you know, scientific researchy. Yes, I wrote it in in a fashion that included the research that that uh, showed in the processing issues in the United States before they were really being talked about. Huh. Um, so my first phase SBIR was shedding a light on um, and, and did a, a project throughout the United States on uh, on processing. Um, mobile processing, the variety of different options, um, and reported that back, uh-huh. and then uh, refunded. Also, did an energy study along with that. Uh-huh. Um, that included a, a cost analysis of refrigeration, and um, and so while the the funding was not, of course, is not directly related to building in any fashion. Right. Um, it was uh, funding that kept me in the world of ag that I'm yeah. very thankful for. That kept me working in uh, finding solutions mm-hmm. and um, and helped me pay a few staff members for the very first time uh-huh. to uh, to get started. Um, so not directly related, but definitely created a path to yeah. success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you weren't a farmer, like the, you couldn't get the VAPG, you might be able to get the SBIR. Um, it's just harder to come up with researchy things that the SBIR will fund, right? Um, mm-hmm. But if you don't have those, then you got to raise equity for it, right? That's the kind of money you need equity for. Yes, and I have not been incredibly successful in those um, conversations to date. I think they're finally real conversations for me to have at this uh-huh. stage of business. Yeah. But early, you know, the, the suggestions go friends and family. Well, that doesn't work. Um, yeah. didn't have those resources to, to lean on. Bank financing was um, uh, was tight, like I said, at the, even that 300,000 um, number. And that was with owning in close to 100 acres. Right. Um, without that, uh, without that equity in uh, small farm ground, I would not have been able to access that capital. Uh, so then you're looking for um, uh, investors that have probably heard something about um, niche meats. I looked at a cooperative angle, um, mm-hmm. asked, I looked at oh, what, what, what if I bound together with a bunch of farmers and we all pitched in Well, I couldn't right. find any small niche producers that had any money to give. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I didn't, I didn't look at all different options. And since then I've had, of course, investment companies reach out through the year, years, uh-huh. Uh, and it's always this question of what, you know, what's your scale? And it was this right. million dollar number that I needed to get to, right. to be uh, something of interest to be able to take it to that next scale, that next size. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we are we are there. Um, and so now it's the question of do we want to go that direction? Do we want to use that type of capital? And what does right. that mean? How does that change the outlook of our family business to that of answering to the pressures of payback. Yeah, right. And, you know, you've gotten it this far without having investors, right? And so it's a little bit like, huh, I wonder. I I have a friend who bought, kind of like you, he did the cheese version of what you did, 
boy, 35 years ago, maybe he bought a little cheese plant, a couple of them actually, who were going out and similar drill, right? I think he now, you know, fast forward that many years has, I don't know, hundreds of millions of sales. And, and he says, you know, I have used programs like the SBA 7A and um, grant programs basically as equity all along. So he really has not brought in any um, outside investment. Um, okay. Yeah, it's all been debt and he's grown it. Um, organically over time. And it's been painful, right, at times. But um, but yeah, no, he just made the choice to keep it as a family business, which is interesting. I mean, actually, you're in the kind of business that once you have a track record of success, banks like food processing businesses because there's actually quite a bit of collateral, right, and, and working capital requirements. So you kind of always need them. It, uh, collateral, yes. Um, and I know we've talked in, in different times um, at the difficulty in uh, valuation on, on a facility like ours. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yes, while there is some collateral and there certainly is a track record, and I know that I'm much more lendable now, uh, I think I was talking about maybe a million dollars, you know, so that's not still, still not the whole, whole, uh, no whole price tag it's but it's a source for sure which i know i can access um if i if i decide that's the right route i think mm -hmm. um but the collateral picture has always been a big question because they they value these facilities like a pole barn right um, right and an awkward pole barn at that um, right it is a pole barn but there's just no use for it if you're not sliding. i know yeah, they're the special use problem, right? Like it's, yes. um, yeah, we went through that with our way plant too. It's like, yeah, well, if this quits, what else are we going to do with this building, right? And that's, that's where the problem comes. But yeah, yeah, no. And then the other thing that has happened in rural America is that, I mean, I don't know it, what, what COVID may have upended this a little bit, but, um, you know, real estate was not necessarily appreciating in rural America. So collateral was hard to find in rural America. Uh, you know what I mean? Like people take it for in urban areas, take it for granted that if you own a building, it's going to appreciate. And that doesn't, hasn't necessarily been true in rural places. Before not, COVID, anyway. Before COVID, not with with buildings, correct? Um, with with farmland has yeah um, been appreciating for sure, but but buildings do not always um, carry that same appreciation. Yeah. yeah, which in urban America that that before COVID was not true, right? It it'll be interesting to see what. I don't know, like what this will be an area that I think COVID will have disrupted things. So at least temporarily. So, yeah, it's crazy. Well, what a journey you've been on. Have we missed anything? Have we missed anything? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, other than the day to day, like or or just the, you know, there's got to be stories, right? To have gone. That's, a lot. That's why I was laughing. That's a loaded question. There's a whole lot in there in between. But um, yeah. as far as other funding sources, I guess I wanted to mention I give credit to the local food promotion program that came. Along oh later. yeah. Um, and so that uh, that is a potential um, positive uh, funding source for facilities um, if if they can spend that correctly. Yeah. Um, and uh, oh, um, I guess that's the biggest other funding source that I wanted to throw out there um, uh -huh. to make sure that it was known. Yeah. Um, as a success for us. But as far as, you know, the day, the day to day, um, I've, I appreciate being in a place in our, our business now that I can help others and can uh, consult for others and offer um, information, at least. And sometimes the best consulting job that I take is to convince somebody that that, that building is not what they want to do. Yeah. Um, and I find that to be a success uh, point if, if they make a path down a different direction. Um, we touched a little bit about the retail outlet. And I guess I would uh, say that when I have been consulting for folks that are looking at building 
a slaughter facility, my suggestion has been to get into that retail storefront first uh-huh. and, um, and then, and then use it as a processing arm, even, yeah, okay. even if they take that under state inspection and then look at building mm-hmm. slaughter after that, that is built to scale um, and adding success to their operation. Um, yeah, it is interesting, right? Everybody always wants to start the other way that you got to, and because that's where people experience the immediate blockage, right? If you're a farmer, like where am I going? I need a processor. When from a business development perspective, starting at the customer and going backwards is probably a better way to do it. Yes, I wish I had I had had that knowledge, um, you know, years ago. I think I right. would probably have gotten there, but I would have gotten there with a little bit less pain. And as a slaughter facility, I have more slaughter capacity mm-hmm. than I have processing capacity, uh-huh. and so that uh, makes sense from my perspective of of partner farms that would build processing and then uh, take it immediately after slaughter and do the finished product there uh, and yeah, yeah. to the customer. Um, so Are I think you, that's not being looked at enough. Yeah. Are you going to uh, be able to break down animals at your store or are you going to keep that all in your processing facility? We'll be able to break down. And I, I have not, um, you know, really finalized what, uh, how much breakdown we'll do. We'll, we'll have a saw uh, mm-hmm. from efficiency standpoint. In some ways, it's going to be more efficient for us to break down in this sure. facility. That said, uh, the customer will want to see uh, some of that finished breakdown um, mm-hmm. in front of them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, probably s- small uh, subprimals, some primals. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing. That makes that sense. Facility. And then, you know, we have two more planned after those, uh, after this first one. And uh-huh. so that's a way to scale a business is to start with one and then add on um, right. uh, one or two more, um, get the business up to um, uh, up to where it needs to be, providing a living back to the farmer and uh, having a smaller group of ditch farmers that you're working with to supply that business model. And then as you build those relationships, you may have those letters of intent to justify yeah. that slaughter capacity. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And you could feature those farms in your stores and that's all good for the farms too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And are you going to stay farming? You, you still have, it sounds like you still have, still have a farm on top of all this. I do. And uh, many times over the years, it's taken the back burner. It's, you know, I got in this because I wanted to farm. Isn't that funny? Um, First generation farmer. And then it's always the thing that gets put, you know, to the backside so that I can provide a living for my five kids and, and uh, myself, of course. And, uh, and then the other employees that are here, this just takes a lot of management. Um, yeah. So I uh, still have a passion for farming. I still am out there doing chores every morning. It's still where I uh, find peace and tranquility. Um, not necessarily what a lot of people think of as hard work, phys- physical hard work, uh, but meaningful work at that. Um, also learned that that's generational in itself, you know, that, uh-huh. that uh, it's really probably not me that's going to make a living, but my, my kids make mm-hmm. a living on the farm. So I just finished my uh, plan this 20 years after I started farming. Yeah, um, I just finished a uh, marketing plan that makes that farm um, have enough uh, labor for one full time um, position and be able to be there forced at self-sustaining. So that's a generation, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Isn't that uh, something? It it takes that, that much time. So I really believe in reinvesting in the farm economy and building those farmers up, but it has to be a core group of people that have a 20 year long vision. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It just, it just takes that much time. Now, would it have been a shorter time if I didn't have the processing into things? I, I can't answer that. If I didn't have life happen in the middle, Right. Um, you know, I can't answer that, but um, I am proud that 20 years later, I do have a plan to be able to support the next generation um, on farm. So I don't foresee it going anywhere. Um, at the same time, it's certainly not a large part of our revenue. Right. Right. That's amazing. 
Yeah. When I work with farms, I tell people, you know, normally I say for, for financial planning, a three-year plan is fine. Nobody believes anything you say beyond there anyway. Um, but with farming, if you like ownership transitions or maybe you're leasing and someday you want to buy it or something, if you don't plan like 10 years out, you'll never get there. It takes too long, right? It, and you have to have to be able to to at least it's theoretical. The plans are already on some level theoretical, right? Um, right? But you have to look out really far to see the end game. See, you could have told me that 20 years ago. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but you know what? When we're young, we just, we're, you know, we're just going to go change the world, which is the way it should be. We need people like you. Oh, my God. I mean, do you ever sleep between this farm and the processing and you doing, helping other people who want to get into processing? I'm like, oh, my God, Jessica. No, I crash at the end of the night. It's a good, it's a good solid sleep because it's well earned. There you go. That's a good, that's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you for joining us today. It's been great to talk to you. And I'm sure lots of people are going to be interested in what you have to say in your story. It's just great. Well, thank you, Tara. I appreciate being able to uh, reflect backwards a little bit and think yeah. forwards. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, you have a great rest of the day. This was great, Jessica. <laughs> you too, Tara. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.